This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the U.S. General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service, FAS? What is the federal marketplace strategy? And how is FAS changing the way it does business? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Sunny Hashmi, Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service within the General Services Administration, GSA. So welcome to the show, Sonny. It's great to have you. Michael, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to join. So Sonny, could you briefly sort of discuss the mission and continued evolution of the U.S. General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service, FAS. Of course. Thank you, Michael. Uh, So for many of uh, our our listeners, uh, the Federal Acquisition Service is the premier supply chain partner to the federal government. Our job uh, at FAS is uh, to um, develop the capability to deliver comprehensive products and services and solutions that the government needs at the best value and in compliance with appropriate regulations, and of course, in furthering the agenda of the of, of the federal government, we, in pursuit of that goal, we uh, provide uh, many solutions, and, and ranging from uh, solutions that allow agencies and help agencies to modernize the technology environment, to buy the goods and services they need, to offer shared solutions and services that allow agencies to leverage prior work that others have built to then further their own mission uh, outcomes, and then also manage some of the most complex and large programs, including the federal fleet, the federal travel program, as well as other solutions that allow agencies to learn and upskill their workforce to deliver better for the American people. Uh, We are uh, about 4,000 people strong, and we manage about 84 to $85 billion worth of products, goods, products, services, and solutions on behalf of the American people every year. Sunny, I was wondering um, what your duties and responsibilities are as FAST Commissioner, and, and how does both your organization and, and what you do on a day-to-day basis um, support the efforts, the overall mission of GSA? Absolutely. So as an anecdote, uh, one of my bosses from a long time ago, his name is Michael Teller, gave me a lesson that stayed with me uh, throughout my career. But what he said to me is that leaders really do very few things. And essentially what leaders do is create the culture and environment where others can succeed. And in pursuit of doing that, they need to make sure that the right people are in the right locations and places and the right talent is being sought after and incorporated, that the right uh, resources are being fought for and, and provisioned so that people can do the jobs they need to do and to set clear goals and priorities. So as a leader, I've always understood, and it's no different at, at, at FAS, that the expertise lies closest to the edge. In other words, the people who are closest to the problem, the people who are working with our customers every day, the people who are working with industry suppliers every day, people are building shared services and solutions and products every day, are closest to understanding the nuances of those challenges. What I want to do is create an environment where they can thrive. 
They can innovate. They can take make decisions. They can take risks. And therefore, they can deliver amazing new results for the American people. And so in pursuit of that, I am very lucky that we have an amazing team uh, from the leadership level all the way down at FAS who are fixated on solving problems for our customers every single day. That is the one driving thing that it motivates us beyond anything else. And so my job is to make sure that they have the room to explore, to try new things, to innovate, to test different methodologies, and to focus on delivery continue to deliver for our customers and therefore deliver for the American people. And so a lot of my focus and my time goes towards how do we measure the success that we create? How do we measure whether or not the bets that we're making are working out? What measurements are the right ones that incentivize the right behavior? I also spend a lot of time thinking about talent. How do we make sure that we continue to create a pipeline of new generations entering the workforce? that we can empower them, we can train them, we can make sure that they have the resources to succeed, and we can give them options to create exciting careers that not only help us deliver on the mission, but also create new opportunities for especially underserved communities. And lastly, I spent a lot of time clarifying our priorities. One of the things that's challenging for an organization like FAS is that we do way too many things for many, way too many people. Like I mentioned, Everything from office supplies all the way to complex weapon systems and satellite technology, we have a role to play. And so it's very easy to get distracted with all the different things that are going on. It's important to continuously and aggressively clarify our priorities and share what's important and to create an environment where people can see their work reflected in what's important to the organization. That's wonderful. You know, and as, as you think of the work that you're doing, uh, Sonny, what, what are some of the, say, say, top management challenges that you've faced, and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Absolutely. So the first that I mentioned already is talent. I think as we move forward, the government and, frankly, our society um, writ large is about to face a brand new set of, a whole era of new challenges around talent acquisition, engagement, and uh, retention, and uh, getting the right people with the right skills engaged in the right kind of work so that they can personally thrive, and as a result, the organization that they belong to also thrives. I think one of the things that, generally speaking, across government, we haven't done a good job over the last 20 years is to continue to make a government, the government an exciting place to work and creating pathways for new entrants into this environment where people want to play a role, making it easy for them to join, making it faster for them to join, making it a long-term career option for new entrants. Because without that pipeline, we're going to continue to face a shortage of existing talent that has the skills we need. So in our case, for example, we rely heavily on people with the contract management skills sets. We call them 1102s. Or program managers who manage, oversee, manage and oversee complex programs. Project managers, technologists. All those skills are very hard to find and increasingly becoming challenging. So this is a challenge that's only going to exacerbate unless specific steps are taken to lower the barriers of entry, to seek out new populations that historically have not engaged in public service before, to create pathways for them to join and thrive and grow, grow their careers with us. And so we're doing, we've done a lot of work on this space. More, much more needs to be done. In the technology space, for example, we have a new program that we've started about a year ago called the U.S. Digital Core, 
that allows early stage career uh, professionals in the technology space to come and join government, not as interns, but fully blown professionals with real work to do. And that program not just allows for the recruitment part of this process, but also invests in continuous training and uplifting their skill sets. So that once you've joined the government, you have a career path in front of you where you can grow your skill sets and do more meaningful things. We're working on developing a similar pipeline approach to contracting officers. It's another area that's highly sought after and not very many talented individuals uh, are available in this space. So we want to create the next core that comes in and solves for supply chain challenges on behalf of the federal government. And so that's an area that I think is going to be a management challenge no matter who you are in government, wherever you are. You need to have a sharp focus. If one of your top three priorities is not recruitment and talent management, then you're missing a step. The other thing that I think is um, has been lacking, frankly, and we need to continue to uh, uplift, is the larger conversation around technology modernization and specifically a focus on customer experience. What I mean by that is that the government certainly spends a lot of money on technology. At writ large, the federal government spends close to $100 billion a year on operating, maintaining, and enhancing its technology, te- technology systems. But that's not enough. The focus on how do we improve our business processes, how do we leverage the power of technology and data and insights and analytics and machine learning and all these capabilities to benefit the business that we're trying to drive, that opportunity space is is, is only very nascent. I'll give you an example. FAS manages somewhere around 75 million products and services on our products catalog. Now we're living in a global economy. Many of these products come from uh, manufacturing places all over the world. They have componentry made in all sorts of countries. We have good actors and bad actors all trying to be participate in this marketplace for various reasons. The ability for a human to look at all the products that are being, being offered by a particular company and navigate over 400 compliance checks to say, is this product made in the company country that it's being claimed to? Is this product made in America? Is it made in a TAA-compliant country? Is it part of a prohibitive list that we should be worried about? Is the price reasonable and fair? All these checks is impossible. A human can only do that work to a certain level of scale. So we have this tremendous potential to train machines to do this routine work at scale that humans can't. So that the human decision-making is much more intelligent based on data and insights that are gained from technology. Those are the kind of opportunities we're pursuing, and every agency should ask themselves, how can I leverage technology and modernize our back-end systems and processes to really supercharge the mission I'm trying to drive? And lastly, I mentioned something called uh, customer experience. It's not something like a pretty website is called better customer experience. It's really thinking about the end-to-end process that your stakeholders go through. Whether that stakeholder is a veteran applying for benefits, whether it's a small business applying for a loan, whether it's a vendor trying to get on a GSA schedule. What is the experience that they go through? What are the bottlenecks and barriers that get in the way? And how do we continue to reduce those barriers through better online capabilities, but also using the breadth of all the things we do, in-person, call centers, communication and training, all these things. How can we bring all of this to bear? Yeah, that's terrific. You know, I was wondering, this is not your first uh, stint in, in federal service. 
uh, Sonny. So uh, what, what surprised you most since taking over the leadership role at FAS? What surprised me as I came back to FAS is uh, two things. First, while I had a good appreciation of the breadth of impact that FAS creates, I never really understood to the extent that FAS uh, adds uh, value every day to the effective operations of the federal government. People don't realize that nothing big happens in the federal government without us playing a role. Now, certainly, we play a supporting role in many cases, but it's an important role to play. Everything from hurricane relief and response to resettling refugees from our Afghan partners to finding ways to tackle climate change and address uh, climate resiliency to improving the cybersecurity posture of government and and reducing the risk from foreign entities, gaining access to our computer systems and data. I mean, the list goes on. In each one of these things, from vaccine responses and making sure that shots get in American arms to making sure that people can order COVID test kits and get them delivered to their houses. Every single one of these major initiatives that the government has been championing, that has a role to play. So the biggest surprise to me is how broad our mission is and how many different ways we show up to add value to Americans. I call FAS kind of the, the, the best analogy I can think of is that in every household, there's a drawer, usually in the kitchen or somewhere near the entryway. And that drawer has all sorts of different random things. Sometimes it doesn't make sense why the things are in there, but they're all equally important. FAS, in the most admirable manner, plays that role. We do so much. And we play a role in so many different aspects of the government's operations that sometimes it looks like we do just too many things that are just all in one organization. But each one of those things matters very directly to the things that Americans take for granted every day and the effective functioning of their government. I'm very proud of the work that we do. I've been most surprised about uh, the impact that we can create. And frankly, I've been surprised at the heroics and the and the, and the dedication of the staff who just work day in and day out doing a lot of routine tasks, a lot of repetitive tasks, just to make sure that the government operates every day effectively and securely. Mm. Yeah, Sonny, given your background um, and, and your time in the public sector uh, and, in, and in the private sector and back and forth, I was wondering what are the characteristics in your mind of an effective leader? And perhaps you could kind of highlight some of your leadership principles that you follow. My philosophy has always been lead with authenticity. Uh, Vulnerability as a leader and showing up and leaning into that vulnerability creates an environment where others in your team feel like that they have permission to be authentic and to be vulnerable. There's many other things, you know, people can say about leadership around, you know, how do you prioritization? How do you communicate clearly? All those things are important. Um, but to me, and this is a lesson that I've had to learn over many years because I was never, I was not, I was not good at it naturally, but I've had to learn through great mentors and guides and coaches is that, like I said, leaders do very few things. I think too many leaders think that their job is to get into the into the details and to do the thing themselves and to tell people how to do the thing themselves. But at some point, if you find yourself in a position of leadership, you have to actively step away from the assumption that you know how to do the job better than people who work for you. That has to be reversed. In fact, 
if you don't have complete confidence that the folks who work for you in your organization know more about the problems and solutions than you, then you haven't done a good job as a leader to recruit, hire, and train the right workforce. That has absolutely got to be the case. So when I walk into a room, my internal metric is, am I the dumbest person in this room? And if so, I'm in the right room because I'll get to learn something today. I'll get to ask questions. I'll get to shadow and uh, identify you know, things that I need to get growing. And I, I hope that everybody who works for me has a specialized skill set and expertise that far ex- you know, exceeds my own. However, my job as a leader is to be the connective tissue. The one thing that I can do is to take the heads for others when, um, so that they can continue to focus on driving the outcomes. So I can provide top cover. I can communicate, and that's an important aspect of being a good leader is communication, with people that I report to and people who report to me in a way that allows us to keep our focus and energy in the right direction and yet communicates the impact we create with others who may not be as close to the work that we do. My job is to also create a framework where people know clearly what the priorities are. That's not an easy thing to do. Very easy, that list of priorities goes from 5 to 15 to 20 to 25 to 40, right? And if you're working on 40 priorities, then you're not working on any priorities. Uh, I think Steve Jobs had a very kind of famous line that I can't recall exactly, but it's along the lines of, you know, complexity is hard. Uh, Complexity is easy. Simplicity is hard, right? To be simple, to create a product or a service that is simple requires enormous effort because all that effort has to be done behind the scenes. So that 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 to me is creating priorities. And it uh, reminds me of the story when uh, Pro- President Kennedy visited NASA after after he made the call for man to go to the moon. He asked uh, a janitor who was uh, working in the facility, and he asked him, so what do you do out here? And the janitor's response was, I help to land a man on the moon. It wasn't to, hey, I do this or that, I clear in this corridor. Everybody in the organization, from the bottom all the way to the top, was aligned on the one goal. And when you have that alignment, magic can happen. Impossible things can be undertaken. And so that's my goal, is how do we get very clear about what our mission is and what's important? Everybody knows it. Everybody can recite it from memory. And everybody asks themselves every day, is the work that I'm spending time doing aligned to that goal or not? And if it's not, should we do it? That's something that I spend a lot of time doing. I also think that in order to do that, in order to create this environment where people can thrive, people people can be experts, people can take risks, there's a lot of investment you need to do on the workforce and culture side of things. Culture is something that happens when you leave the room. That's I love that quote because as long as you're in the room, you can you can force whichever culture you want in that conversation. But when you leave the room, what do people talk about? What do they prioritize? How do they make decisions? That's culture. And so it's a deliberate act to create a culture of trust, to create a culture of empowerment, to create a culture where decisions can happen at all levels, to create a culture where data drives our decisions, not in, not feelings or emotions or politics. Create a culture where people do the right thing for the right reasons, not the expedient thing or the easy thing. All those things require deliberate action. And to make sure that the right people are in the right roles, 
from the very top all the way to the bottom? Are we recruiting the right kinds of people who have the right personality and the right goals and passions? All of that requires very significant effort and thought. So as a leader, I believe that is ultimately the leader's job to create culture that will drive the right environment for people to be able to be effective. So when I see leaders who are very command and control, all the information has to travel all the way up to the organization and then all the way down the organization. I mean, that was probably the best way to organize an organization in the industrial age, right? Uh, the decisions get made by the floor manager. Everybody just shuts up about it and does the thing that they've been told to do, but certainly not in the information age. The person at the top has the least amount of information. The, per- the person on the front line has the most amount of information. And so why not you know, allow decision-making to happen as deep in the organization as reasonable so that action can be taken the fastest and we can pivot the, the fastest to meet our customers' needs? So those are some of the, my philosophies that I've always em- embodied. And they work for me in uh, in many ways. So I hope that others can take some value from that too. What are the key strategic priorities for the Federal Acquisition Service, FAS? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sonny Hashmi, Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service within the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA. Shifting gears a bit, Sonny, you mentioned earlier that your organization leverages the buying power of the federal government by you know, negotiating prices on many products and services required by federal agencies you know, for daily operations. And I was wondering if you could maybe underscore a little bit your strategic vision for FAS and where I'm going with this is what are your key priorities and how do they, using that word, complement or align with the administrator's top priorities? Absolutely. So um, I'll, 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 I'll share a couple of things very briefly. First of all, um, the markets that we operate in, both in our personal lives and in the government or in any organization, corporate environment, are changing rapidly. Today, you have options at your fingertips. You can negotiate prices. You can find discounts. You can compare and contrast different options uh, as an individual in your life. The same kind of thing is happening in the markets we, we, we work in. First of all, supply chains have become global. Suppliers of the commodities that we need, and we need commodities to operate every day, uh, are now shifting their manufacturing plants and distribution chains in a global sense, right? So one thing we need to understand is, we're in this part of this global economy now. So when, an, when when we need something, 
And especially when we need that at scale, we need to understand who our suppliers are that we trust and what does that trust look like, right? Does that trust uh, look like uh, a commitment to delivery within a certain number of days when we order uh, something? Does that trust look like a commitment to a certain pricing that uh, we pre-negotiated? So all of this change leads us to rethink how we create this marketplace. Ultimately, you know, yes, pricing is important. We want to make sure that the government's buying power is being used to negotiate best pricing. What's bigger than that, though, is creating a marketplace that thrives. Because our job is also to create an environment where companies, especially small businesses, can come and succeed. They have access to opportunities. They can compete effectively. They can show their best, you know, they can actually compete based on their strengths and not just through regulation or, you know, some sort of a contrived uh, environment. All of those are important equally, right? So the federal buying power is an important lever for us to, to, to actuate, to drive many different priorities, not just um, priority of uh, fair pricing. Uh, when, when agencies buy through FAS, the discounts that we have pre-negotiated consistently far exceed anything that an agency can do on their own, or anything that you can see in, the private, in, in your personal life, right? So not taking the foot off the gas on that front at all. However, one of the things that occurs to me is that if you're going to move other levers, if you're going to move, you know, we're also going to drive sustainability across the federal supply chain. If you're going to increase the level of security and cybersecurity and reduce supply chain risk and improve opportunities for small businesses, now we have a balanced scorecard that we have to balance all together, right? And how you manage this across tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of companies and suppliers, hundreds of millions of products is through a data-driven approach. Data drives insights that allow us to be much more strategic about what an average product should cost. And that is category management. So our strategy at FADS is to lean in on data as the key driver for everything that we want to drive in the federal acquisition environment. When we have line item data around what people buy, how much they pay for it, what is the list price and how much the average discount is, at what points in the year those discounts change based on alignment to a vendor's fiscal year goals, for example, or external factors, and how do we leverage those kinds of trends in our favor? How do we bring a buying power together? Can we buy them once from one supplier to drive even deeper discounts? How do we make sure that we increase the number of small business suppliers in the mix? How do we make sure that we have data on what the sustainability and the carbon impact is of the overall end-to-end process that manufactures that table. When you collect this data, now you have insights. And now you have a much smarter buyer that can negotiate on multiple dimensions. And so that's my strategy, is to lean in on data and then get that data in the hands of the people who are negotiating on behalf of the government every day. And train those people to then use this data for the benefit of the American people. That is something that sounds like a very straightforward thing. Or sounds like a, yeah, of course, this makes sense. But unfortunately, the government has never really been able to do done that at scale. And so at FAS, we're putting all the mechanics in place to do just that. And in fact, it's already showing results. We are seeing hundreds of thousands of products that have been in their supply chain that don't meet our criteria, but have missed and slipped through the cracks sometimes and somehow. So we've been over this year, we've actually over the, working together over the last year, have removed over 500,000 products from our supply base that either are not uh, misrepresented in the terms of country of origin or don't meet the priorities for made in America laws 
That's wonderful. And I, I'm wondering, you know, Sonny, when you think of the vision and, and the work that you're doing, the accomplishments that you're going to realize, how does the federal marketplace strategy factor into all this? What is it? And maybe you could tell us how, is the, how it has evolved or, or where it's going. Absolutely. So um, generally speaking, the federal marketplace strategy is, is an initiative that started a few years ago. Over the last year and a half, we really re- refocused it on a set of very core focus areas. So essentially it's a it's an umbrella set of initiatives that all tie to exactly achieving the outcomes that I just talked about. How do we engage with our supply base? How do we make it easy for them to do business with us? How do we leverage how do we collect the right amount of data, analyze it and make decisions out of that data and get in the hands of the people who are making these decisions? And also how do we make it easier for our customers, other agencies to buy through us? to get the data that they need to make comparative analyses and so forth, right? So um, the federal market strategy sort of began with these kind of four cornerstone initiatives. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was to reduce complexity. We used to have many, many, many different multiple award schedule contracts, so vendor wouldn't know which one is the right one for them. So we consolidated all of them, so it's one place to go. Um, we are modernizing something called catalog management, which is the back end for how all this data comes together and how all these insights are generated and how we apply all these rules. Like I mentioned, there's about 400 business rules that need to be applied on every single product that we have to make a decision on whether or not we include it into our marketplace or not. 400. So imagine a human being going through a checklist of 400 decision points before one product gets added. It's an untenable situation. So automating all of that becomes a priority. And so catalog management is our effort to automate and uh, streamline a lot of those processes. Commercial platforms um, is another initiative that is part of the same conversation. Is like, okay, what are the things that FAS needs to do because they're so specialized and so unique to the government that we need to put a lot of effort and focus into making sure the right things show up at the right places versus what are the things that are just commoditized? Uh, we're working with uh, Amazon and Fisher Scientific and uh, increasingly we're going to be working with additional companies in that space. Ultimately, though, I want to talk about FMP in three terms, actually four terms. The goal of all the things that happen within this FMP or federal marketplace strategy is there are four stakeholder groups that we want to do better by. Number one, we need to focus on buyer experience. How do they go from we have this need to we know who can provide this need? What is a fair price to pay for it? How do we order it and have a guarantee that it will be delivered on time? and of the quality that we expect. That entire end-to-end buyer experience, we need to continue to improve it. Number two, we need to make sure that the supplier experience gets the same amount of focus. Who are you? What products do you want to sell? What are the prices that you want to want to offer? Are you compliant? We have many different needs for engaging with the supplier community, but it's very complicated to do business with us sometimes. So we want to continue to streamline that experience because ultimately, the complexities in that interaction keep many small businesses and innovative companies out of the marketplace because it's just too hard for them to engage. Number two. So number three is we want to create a thriving products marketplace that has all the things that we talked about incorporated into it. Sustainability, small business focus, cybersecurity, price analysis, all of those kinds of things. And that goes back to the work that we're doing in catalog management and others. So ultimately, we're going to lead to an environment where somebody could go to a marketplace find the right product for their need, pay the right price for it, and transact right in the same place. 
And then similarly, the area that doesn't get a lot of focus, but turns out that about 70% of federal purchasing, 70 plus percent of the dollars that the federal government spends with suppliers is on services, not products. So here's a 70% of the marketplace that is even more complex. What is a service? What do you buy? How do you negotiate? When you hire or contract a software engineer, is a software engineer a software engineer a software engineer? No. I mean, depending on which skills you have and how many years of experience. So all of that requires a rethink and a discussion around how do we make sure that the right services are packaged, delivered? What are the right outcomes that we're trying to drive? How do we hold people accountable? All those kinds of things require rethink on the services marketplace. So that's what the FMP is. Ultimately, it's goal to improve the outcomes for suppliers, for buyers, for our workforce around these uh, these angles. And so we basically use that as an umbrella uh, kind of initiative. And then underneath it, there's specific projects that lead to improvements in one or more of these areas. Very helpful uh, walkthrough to that and understanding the important role that um, that it plays in, in executing many of the initiatives you're pursuing. And, and one of those things, and you've mentioned this before, Sonny, is, you know, uh, the, cost, the focus on the customer. And for years, the federal acquisition community has been asking for, you know, as you pointed out, simpler ways to get information it needs to make smarter purchases and be good stewards of the federal uh, taxpayer money. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the about efforts to enhance the buyer experiencing by consolidating online uh, and simplifying market research, helping acquisition planning, and how certain tools like buy gsa.gov or anything else, uh, GSA Advantage, is factoring in to ultimately helping the end user. Absolutely. So obviously, uh, improving the buyer experience and making it simpler continues to be a priority. Ultimately, we lead it from the CX perspective, right? So ensuring that customer experience is a primary consideration in decision-making and strategic planning uh, as we start thinking about improvements is, uh, is, is a key focus for us. So integrating CX or customer experience uh, practices into the entire life cycle of how we develop these solutions and how we improve uh, capabilities. So as an example, just this last year, we released a couple of capabilities that are very important. And this is something that for a long time our customers have asked us for, right? This is known, these are known problems. It's about putting the right focus in the right places, right? So how do we align our focus, our energy, our resources to solving the problems that are the most pressing for our customers? Sounds like a simple thing, but that has led us to building uh, this capability called buy.gsa.gov. And it's essentially a digital online landing spot. You can go to buy.gsa.gov today. And if you're a buyer, it brings together all the tools you need to do everything from market research to price comparative analysis to making sure that you have access to and visibility into, hey, I, I only want to target my buyer to service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses and who's on the marketplace or this location. I want to buy, I want to contract for services for building management in this particular location. So when you're making these decisions, the first step is who are the suppliers who can meet my need? What are their offerings? You know, are these offerings, like what are the guarantees? And then templates. If I'm going to do this contracting activity, what is a good template for a quality assurance plan? What is a good template for a requirements definition? And so we're, we're automating all of this. And now, you know, we have increasing number of people who are using these tools because there's been a big need for a long time. And the reason why that's been increasing in, in, in usage is because we've, from the very beginning, used human-centered design to develop this tool. Uh, ultimately, we 
talk to our end users and like, what gets in your way today? How do you do market research today? How do you develop a PWS today? And what if we built this template? What if we built this automation? Would we give you a tool to do this? Would you use it? And then based on their feedback, we create and continuously improve this environment. Behind the scenes, we have to do all of this using agile methodology, right? We can't do a, hey, you gave me some feedback. Three years from now, we'll let you know what happened. We have to deliver constantly and, co and, and continuously so that we can pivot and we can continue to show values. Similarly, GSA Advantage is our e-marketplace, for those of you who don't know. Um, it's our internal portal that allows people to go um, and find a product that they need and uh, add it to a shopping cart and, um, and, and buy it, essentially, as a government entity. And historically, you know, it's, it's, it's had many different uh, shortcomings that we continuously hear about. But through collaboration across the FAS organization, which, uh, which has uh, been powered by the right people in the right roles, the right priorities, the right focus areas, um, we've been able to continuously improve over the last year GSA Advantage. So now a customer can go in and not only search through deep search, but also see 3D product review, pro product uh, images and videos and cheat sheets and training manuals all in one place. And they can log in using their PIV card, just like they log into anywhere else in the government. And they can transact that end-to-end -end, uh, transaction uh, all online without any human intervention, right? So these are the small things that historically have gotten people's ways, like, oh, I don't want to go through this because it's hard to find the thing and search doesn't work. And But even when I find the product, I don't even know what it is because there's no picture of it. So we've been increasingly solving for these problems. And then over time, GSA Advantage is also looking to increase. So, for example, this last year, we added um, those products that are supplied by uh, suppliers in native nations. We've added markings for products and companies, products that are offered by small businesses or veteran-owned, veteran, service table veteran-owned small businesses or women-owned small businesses. So when an agency or buyer goes in and says, hey, it's my priority to buy through native suppliers or buy through women-owned small businesses, they can search and filter for that so they can they can focus their energy on buying through those channels that they prefer. So a lot of work is going on in this front. Ultimately, it's got to lead to a simpler experience so that all the different things that a buyer has to balance out, socioeconomic categories, better pricing, all those kind of things can be done in one place. And then ultimately, agencies can focus on their mission rather than spending all this time thinking about how the procurement should work. That should be our job. So, Sonny, I'd like to discuss the important role that GSA plays in the replacement of the federal government's legacy technology systems. And in particular, how does TTS and 18F work directly with government agencies on their IT modernization journey? And perhaps um, you could illustrate some of the successful collaborations. What are some of the challenges being faced in this area? Absolutely. So, um, listen, um, first of all, uh, for those of you who don't know, the TTS or the Technology Transformation Service is um, a part of the Federal Acquisition Service. It was an organization that started about 10 years ago with a singular focus on helping agencies be more effective as they modernize their technology. TTS, uh, within TTS is an organization called ATNF, which think of ATNF as internal consultants within the federal government. The ATNF team works very closely with uh, all agencies who are embarking on a, a technology modernization project to help them think through how to scope it, how to organize it, what are the best practices, do user research, and then ultimately help them become smarter buyers. One of the reasons, one of the things that I know without any doubt is that nobody 
not government agencies nor consulting firms and suppliers want to be part of a bad project. Nobody wants to go and spend years and millions of dollars only to lead to a bad outcome. And we unfortunately have too many of those stories in the federal government historically. So TTS and ATF were designed from the very beginning to prevent that from happening through knowledge transfer, through partnership to support. Many of the legacy systems we've been working on across the government are 30, 40, even 50 years old. We're currently consolidating and updating those platforms because, you know, uh, across the government, that's, you know, a lot of been driven by cost reduction targets and cybersecurity challenges. And then, like I mentioned, increasingly around customer experience uh, opportunities that, uh, you know, require backend modernization. But but ultimately, like we we, it doesn't make any sense to keep building and supporting something that won't be able to take us into the future expectations that we need to do. So, technology modernization across the federal government is one of the one of the biggest priorities for this administration. In fact, both the administration and the Hill have partnered to spend over a billion dollars or set aside over a billion dollars through the technology modernization fund to make sure that agencies have access to capital to invest in these modernization projects. The way TTS and ATF work. <clears throat> is that within TTS, ATNF and another organization called the Centers of Excellence are acquisition consultants, um, you know, that have historically worked on, discovered, refined, and published best practices to reduce the risk of technology projects in both state and local governments and federal government. And they do that by adopting best practices from the private sector, agile principles, DevSecOps, with performance-based servicing service contracts, right? So there's no like, I mean, it's innovative in the sense that when you adopt and, and personify and internalize these best practices, it turns out that the results speak for themselves. Every single time you're able to drive a better outcome. But it requires, it's almost like a culture shift. It requires a dedication and discipline that many times agencies don't know how to get there from here on their own. And that's why we can come in and help. Agencies ultimately can buy smarter. Right now, with the methods, tools, and templates that are available in the ATNF uh, de-risking guide, which is a document that we created for any agency to consume that gets documents all these best practices, it's called de-risking government technology field guide. And as a result, agencies uh, can deliver a better experience to the citizens and have a, a much more successful project. So that's the goal of these programs, where we've seen them work very effectively, and they work constantly across across the entire federal government is that their impact outlasts just that one engagement. Because not only do they go in and help an agency think about a particular procurement or particular project, but the best practices that leave behind then have greater impact in that agency's future uh, projects that may come along. ATNF partners with agencies to improve the user experience of government services by helping them build and buy technology. So as an example, uh, as many of you know, October was Cybersecurity Month. ATNF is, for example, currently partnering with agencies that specialize in that space, uh, including uh, the Department of Homeland Security and CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Cybersecurity in, in, in Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, this is where we can take the best practices that exist in government and copy and paste them for the benefit of every other agency. And so that's the value that they provide. Lastly, I wanted to mention that we've deployed a cross-functioning team to work on a new experience for the .gov registrar. So the .gov registrar is basically the authoritative body that assigns .gov URLs to any state, local, federal government agency. 
the only place where the U.S. government, the only place that U.S. governments, including states and territories, localities, tribes, and federal agencies, can receive a trusted .gov domain. So by working closely with CISA through the 18F uh, team, not only are we going to be able to create a great experience for agencies to be able to leverage that, but also increase trust in government. Ultimately, citizens, when they engage with government, they know that they're working with a trusted entity, and this is just one of the ways to do it. How is FAST delivering comprehensive products and services across government at the best value possible? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sonny Hashmi, Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service within the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA. So, Sonny, given your role in the Technology Modernization Fund, TMF Board, would you tell us more about what's going on with the process? How is the board taking a more balanced approach, and are there any updates in this area you would like to share? Of course. And first of all, I want to make it uh, very clear that we have an amazing leader uh, in Raylene Young who leads the TMF uh, program and board within GSA. And uh, it would be great to connect with her as well, because, of course, she would be the closest to the initiatives that are underway. But I can share generally the TMF, the Technology Modernization Fund, was established to solve a very specific problem. In many cases, agencies don't have access to the capital they need to invest upfront in the technology modernization they want to drive thereby reducing the opportunity for them to drive the outcomes that the American people expect. The TMF has over time evolved our process to meet these agency needs. We're engaging earlier in the process, sometimes even reviewing draft ideas through conversations and office hours and collaborating actively throughout the board evaluation process. We are meeting agencies where they are and getting them to answer faster. So instead of just waiting for proposals to come in, we're helping agencies think about opportunities and then helping them through the process to make these proposals reality. Agencies submit the initial uh, project proposals, which act as a low burden of entry. So we, we, we go through a pre-screening process and help agencies correct and, and identify the right outcomes they're trying to drive. Uh, if the board does approve an IPP, the project team, which typically consists of project managers, SMEs, CIOs, and CISOs, develop and submit their full project proposal for the board. Obviously, there's a lot of governance, and we're going to make sure, ultimately, that the dollars that the Congress has allocated and entrusted GSA to manage are being spent on the highest priorities, the right priorities, and are being managed well. Projects can also be recommended 
for funding by the board, uh, which uh, can also receive incremental funding over time. One of the things that's important to us is to tie funding to outcomes that are being driven. So one of the things we've been doing is to make sure that the funding is released incrementally. So as an agency is able to clear a phase or deliver a certain set of capabilities, they can then be issued additional funding. But it also gives the government to pivot in case certain efforts are not yielding the results that we want to be able to pivot those dollars into other high priority initiatives. So we're excited about this. Uh, the most recent uh, uh, effort in this space is the investment of over $100 million uh, into projects that specifically attack and address the customer experience executive order. And we're excited about some of the results that we're going to be seeing over the next year. Sunny, the federal government faces increasing risks, and we must ensure that the federal supply chain keeps a pace with buying secure and sustainable products, services, and solutions. And to that end, given your role and your leadership, would you tell us more about the work around building supply chain resiliency and securing the supply chain? That's a great question. And uh, by the way, there's two aspects to this um, uh, to this challenge that I want to highlight. One is this, the overall security and risk surface of the supply chain. How do we understand it? How do we reduce it over time so that we can reduce, continue to reduce and de-risk the supply chain overall? The second aspect is resiliency. How do we enable the supply base that we work with to be more resilient in the face of cyber challenges, but also to secure their own subsequent supply chains so that they know that when they provide a product or service, or including software, for example, that the government relies on, that they have internal controls within their organizations that are securing their own code base, their releases, and their product uh, development cycles. So just taking a step back, Executive Order 14028 sets the stage for the need to reassess the cybersecurity posture government-wide for all of our supply chain. And it's defined a strategy to move agencies towards the same level of maturity. Now, understand that software does not just mean the software that runs on our computers. Every single aspect of our personal lives today have a component of software. When you turn up the thermostat in your house to make it warmer, there's software involved. When you run the dishwasher at night, there's software involved. And similarly in government, every single thing that we use from security products to physical security products to uh, personal uh, uh, you know, productivity capabilities, building management, logistics uh, capabilities, vehicles, everything has software embedded in them. And so when you look at the scope of uh, this challenge, it's, it's ever increasing the surface area of the challenge. And we want to make sure that we apply these best practices and policies to all of those different categories. Our top priority is to maximize customer value and mission productivity, of course. And so we have to ensure acquisition and category activities align with cybersecurity policies and objectives. It's not just enough for us to say, here's the new regulations, everybody has to comply. We have to actively go out of our way and reach out to these communities um, and help them understand and develop internal controls to assess the security of their software. As an example, uh, one of the areas that we're working on at FAS, which is a key focus area for the administration, is to deliver and deploy electrification technology across the nation. As you know, under the infrastructure uh, bill, uh, the president had made, made a commitment to deploy as many as 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the nation. And within the federal government, about you know another many tens of thousands will be deployed over the next over the coming years. Now, each one of these charging stations is a network connected device. 
So ultimately, historically, that industry has not very been very up to speed on what the cybersecurity expectations of the federal government are. So as an example, we've been proactively working with the suppliers in that community to help them understand what NIST standards to follow, how to comply, how to document, how do we test and validate those products so that we are pre-staging those products so when an agency purchases a charging station, for example, and deploys them, or when a tribal organization purchases a tribal charging station and deploys them on uh, on tribal territory, or a state or city agency does that, that all of that cybersecurity expectations are tested and built in. They don't have to do that validation over and over and over again. That's just one example on how this uh, executive order is driving the right outcomes. Ultimately, making sure vendors have incorporated into their software development processes best practices defined by NIST is the goal. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that M2218, which is the OMB memo that codifies this executive order and provides implementation guidance, is uh, leading to rulemaking. So one of the things that is underway right now is the Federal Acquisition Regulation has a draft rule that is out for comment. Want to make sure that anybody who's listening who is uh, part of a company that is building software that you sell to the federal government or make available to the federal government participates in that rulemaking. One of the things we don't want to do is create such burden for software providers that it's increasingly, it's even harder to do business with the government because it's easy for us to pass a regulation, but we want to do it in a way that actually adds value to your operation and, of course, protects the cybersecurity posture of the enterprise. And so we want to partner with you all. We want to hear from you and your ideas on how we can make that rule uh, the most streamlined way we, we can and what are the better ways and other ways that we can be thinking about increasing the cybersecurity posture of our overall enterprise. So I've called this particular challenge the challenge of the decade because, and truly so, the surface area is so large and the risk is at a point which is unsustainable that unless we take significant action now, we will continue to have increasing challenges, not only for the next decade, but beyond. And the challenge is significant enough that not only are we do we need to just you know take actions today, but we need to continuously put effort and focus on the cybersecurity and overall supply chain risk management aspect of the federal government for a sustained amount of time until it's fully embedded into everything we do. So, Sonny, as we close today, what are some of the key takeaways you'd like to leave with our listeners? And do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about a career in public service and perhaps coming to work for FAST? I want to, I want to leave with sort of a call to action and, 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 and a, uh, an, an invitation. The call to action is uh, that there has never been greater challenges, but also greater opportunities for the federal government to become smarter about how we engage with the private sector, to learn best practices and incorporate those best practices into our operation, to modernize our systems and processes for the betterment of the outcomes we try to drive. We have a magical moment in time when we have alignment from the topmost parts of the government all the way to the front lines, where we have access to uh, investment ability, we have the ability and focus from leadership across the board to really prioritize moving the needle on making better outcomes happen for the American people. Not that every government, of course, has this core mission in mind, but for the first time, the technology modernization aspect of it is the best aligned it's ever been in my life. And so let's really make it a priority. And the call to action is let's really link arms and drive the outcomes we need to drive. It's too easy to find reasons why progress doesn't get made in government. So let's push through those reasons. GSA is there to help. 
any agency who wants uh, any partnership, everything from thinking about human-centered design approaches, doing better acquisitions, helping you do those acquisitions if you if you would like us to, or even helping you with direct delivery of these shared services and solutions. Secondly, I think I want to mention is that if um, in order to do all of the things that we've talked about today, supply chain, cybersecurity, technology modernization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, our talent needs in government will continue to be going through the roofs. If you want a lifetime career of honorable, impactful work that you will never be out of fashion, then come join the Federal Acquisition Service. And I truly mean that. If you invest the time and energy in pursuing a career in either acquisition as an 1102 or program management as an 1101 or a technologist as a 2210, these are all job series that the government uh, uses to identify different types of jobs and careers. If you're interested in any of these areas, send me an email. Not only do we have many programs to help you get involved and get on board and get trained, but we desperately need all the talent in this space that we can possibly find. And so, and, and this, this trend is not going to go away. And so this is an opportunity for you, if you're interested, to do honorable, impactful work. And we need you, if you're listening and if you're interested, and your talents to come and work for the American people. So that's my call to action. If you're interested, please reach out to me. And I will make sure that uh, that your uh, that your name is uh, considered for any and all opportunities that we have coming up. Uh, Sonny, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today and and really helping us understand the mission, the critical mission that your organization plays in IT modernization and beyond. But I want to thank you more importantly for your dedicated service to the country. Michael, thank you so much. It's very kind of you, and I look forward to the next opportunity to talk and. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to serve in uh, whichever capacity that I can. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Sonny Hashmi, Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service within the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. And as always, at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.